0: d
1: Deviant women. We are your hosts. I'm Lauren. I'm Alicia. And this is the podcast where we talk about women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I love the way you say that every I time. I do. It's special. It's a special word it's to me now. It's such a special word. You should get it tattooed on your butt. Nah. Just imagine that. Imagine I won't, you though. just had a tattoo
0: of the word contemporaneity.
1: contemporaneity. It will always, always Be relevant. That would be amazing. (laughs) That's so good. Anyway, moving on from that, we've received some of our first merch orders. Yes. So um, that's really exciting. We've got t shirts, we've got pins. If anyone wants to jump online, you can follow the link to the merch store at our blog, deviantwomenpodcast.com. Yeah, that's exciting because we launched that properly in our last podcast. So please
0: get on board and buy our wares.
1: You can also
0: (laughs) follow the link on our blog page to our Patreon page as well if you'd like to sign up to support us. We've got some
1: exciting online-only content coming soon for our our Patreon supporters. Mm. So... Yep. And you
0: also get some merch as a reward if you sign up there. Yeah. So definitely get on board. So what are we talking about today, Alicia? Well, you may remember from a couple of podcasts ago, we promised a special guest That's was right. coming up and then... We didn't do it. So we did. Because well, <laughs> we did do it, we actually. Did do it. We're doing it now. It's done. We're doing it well, now. Well, it's, it's about to be it's done. It's about to be done. So today we have a very special guest on the podcast. We have a very special guest on the podcast. That's right. We have author Aurelia van Leeuwen. She is the author of a novel called Treading Air. And we're going to get to talking with Aurelia in just a moment. But first of all, we might give a little bit of context
1: about the novel itself. Mm. So, what we're really talking about when we're talking about the novel is we're talking about a historical woman named Lizzie O'Day. So, real she, life woman, really. Real existing. life deviant woman. She was a, a petty criminal and maybe sex worker in um, Townsville, which is a town in the like really northern Queensland for those of you who are not Australian. Yeah. So, the setting that we're looking at,
0: think like hot humid yeah muggy tropical sweating all the time always the sweating never with the not sweating Mm. and the period of time that we're talking
1: about is sort of the interwar years yeah 1920s particularly mostly in the 1920s there's a lot of social change happening we've got some interesting things with the rise of like flappers and changes in attitudes towards sexuality and stuff that we're gonna get into. So yeah, hopefully you can unpack quite a bit mm. of that with Aurelia.
0: And also, I suppose just as a bit of an idea of where we kind of find Lizzie in her story, we, we meet her while she's still living in Brisbane with her father, who yeah. is himself a bit of a bit of a gambler. Bit of a bit gambler. Of a... Not the most respectable yeah. man. Yeah. And Lizzie meets and falls in love with a guy called Joe. Yeah. And so Joe and Lizzie marry and they move up to Townsville. And that's sort of where Lizzie's story really mm. runs away with us. Yeah. And we will unpack all of that today with Aurelia, author of Treading Air, the story of Lizzie O'Day. Is it Lizzie O'Day or Lizzie O'Dea?
1: See, I don't know how to pronounce I- anything. I've been
2: saying O'Day.
1: Okay, I assume O'Day because she's also Betty Knight. Oh! Oh my god, that that didn't occur to to me! (laughs) Oh,
0: that's so clever and I missed it completely.
1: So in case you didn't catch on, this is a novel about a woman, partly called Lizzie O'Day, who has an alias, Betty Knight. And so welcome, Ariella. How are you today? I'm good. So, Treading Air is
2: historical fiction. Mm, I think I would call it historical biofiction. That's what Uh, I was wondering. Yeah. yeah.
1: I was almost going to call it historical biography. And then I was like, no, it's really kind of fictional biography. Mm. So, can you tell us a little bit about this woman,
2: Lizzie O'Day? Yeah. So, I came across Lizzie O'Day when I first moved to Townsville. And I like finding out about places that I live Uh, and the National Library in Trove has this amazing database of newspapers that you can search to find history and near where I lived there was this empty patch of dirt and I wondered what had been there before Mm. and when I searched the National Library databases I found that there had been a seedy hotel there called the Causeway Hotel. Oh, city hotel. (laughs) Yes and then I discovered that, and this is when I first met Lizzie O'Day, she was at the back of the Causeway Hotel, uh, and she had shot another woman in the thumb (laughs) because she had stolen 19 pounds from her best friend, Salma Grant. Oh, my God. So Lizzie went out on a kind of revenge, and the newspaper article described in quite vivid detail how the police turned up to the back of the Causeway Hotel, found Lizzie trying to hide the gun in the pocket of her apron <laughs> and Dolly Franks, who was the woman she'd shot, saying there's the offender and Lizzie going, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never a <laughs> woman
1: in my life before. <laughs> <laughs> With, I imagine it's actually probably quite difficult to conceal a gun in your yeah. apron <laughs> pocket. Like,
2: yeah, they put on fairly quickly that <laughs> Thing of this, and Thelma Grant, who's the one whose money was stolen, was found passed out on the ground nearby.
1: Oh, so. wow! Like from the shock of it all, or do we know why oh, she
2: passed out? I suspect out? she probably had had too much to drink, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, the thing about these newspaper articles is that they are very sensationalized, they're yeah. the equivalent of you know a trashy crime TV. Series that yeah, we might.
1: There's a huge, true crime is hugely popular, like at the moment, I think. And I can't imagine that it would have been terribly different back when there was no TV, no podcasts, no, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> this is where you
2: get your sensationalism from, isn't it? Yes, that's right. I mean, I've got an example here of an article on Lizzie O'Day from The Truth in 1929.
1: Wait, is that a newspaper called The Truth? Yes, it's a newspaper. <laughs>
2: But it is highly, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how simple it is. Yeah, let's just take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> yes, yeah. So they describe Lizzie O'Day, underworld queen who held wedding breakfast at Spring Hill pie stalls. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opening line. And then they proceed to go on and describe Lizzie as subversive and irredeemable Ooh. and other such adjectives. Yeah, salacious mm. writing. Something about that that really interests me
0: is that quite often and in Deviant Women we've come across these kind of people before where when they're written about, especially when stories about women are written about, the language that's used is very different to the language that's used when crimes by men are discussed does this Mm. kind of come up in the fact that these stories about people like Lizzie were quite sensationalized that it's kind of almost trivialized or it's a bit of fluff it's not taken as seriously as crimes by men or that there is a different kind of slant to the way that it's reported Mm.
2: yeah I think actually what you see in the reporting of Lizzie O'Day is actually that she's almost this humorous figure that emerges in the, in the newspaper archives. So there's one article I read that was called Lizzie's Embrace Jail, the sequel, that described oh. how she went up to this man in a bar, gave him a hug, said, will you shout me a drink, Dad? And then when he refused, she stole his wallet. <laughs> so it was this kind of humor and in another case where they're reporting the incident that I was telling you about where Lizzie had shot the woman in the thumb, there's a bit where they're kind of talking about they transcribed the court case and the prosecutor and defence is saying, you know, would this gun that she had, would it kill anyone? And the lawyer says, I don't know, but I wouldn't like to stand in front of it. Right. Oh, but the defence is, but these shots were fired at this woman and it didn't kill her. And then the prosecutor said, well, she must have had a particularly thick skull or else no brain. <laughs> oh. And so there's this kind of, in the way that Lizzie's story, I think, particularly is reported, is this humour that really belittles yeah. the huge significance that, you know, this is a case that sent her to jail for a couple of years and she actually self-harmed in, in jail. Right. She tried to cut her throat with a piece of tin. Oh, my God. So there's this, the way that it's reported that she is presented as humorous figure, this figure that, you know, hangs around in the red light district at the back mm-hmm. of the Causeway Hotel and later in Brisbane, that she kind of tricks men and, uh, you know, is out for what she can get. But then actually what you see beneath the stories is a life that's in and out of jail. And what's also interesting is you can kind of compare Lizzie's story with her husband, Joseph O'Day, who she married and they had the breakfast at the pie stall in Springfield. So Australian, yeah. (laughs) I (laughs) know. Classy too, I think. And I think that there's an element of that particular detail of the pie stall evokes all this kind of class yes I was thinking that when you first well, said it that's definitely a class statement isn't it like yeah, are these yeah. are
1: the types of people who have their wedding reception at a pie stall yeah
2: exactly you know they're not classy people mm. there. so you start to see the way that class as well as gender is playing a role in I think at once making Lizzie this very public figure and this this figure of humor and almost playfulness at the same time as kind of like excluding her then from the realm, the proper realm of the domestic housewife and almost, well, in fact, reinforcing the cycles of her being caught up in sex work and petty crime. And she works at different times as in a laundry, but then gets caught in the Second World War in Brisbane, gets caught for smuggling army blankets and tins of bully beef. So she's Her history is one of kind of sex work and domestic work Mm. and then cycles of petty crime and in and out of jail as well.
1: That's interesting because I'm wondering what I was thinking of is that issue of respectability, I suppose, Mm -hmm. comes with, like you said, she did some, you know, work as a laundress, and I suppose this is a more socially respectable trade for somebody of her class, Mm. but you know it doesn't pay the best you know there's definitely more money to be made in sex work and in petty crime but it does come with this social trade-off you know you can't be a sex worker and continue to have even the lower class respectability that is available to you if you continue to work in a laundry so do you think Mm -hmm. that that is that fact that she was working at the causeway and she was known for is it definitely Mm -hmm. confirmed that she was a sex worker at the causeway or is it sort of something? that's a little bit more a detail that we assume?
2: I think we assume I mean it's known that there was a red light district at the back of the Causeway Hotel and that's within living memory and in fact it was quite infamous so people uh, particularly in Townsville would tell me that they remembered the red light district there although now it's been Ah. bulldozed and the street name has changed so that's An interesting kind of almost uh, attempt, I think, to erase Mm -hmm. that underbelly in Townsville. But people remember it and remember driving past the Causeway Hotel in the red light district. And, in fact, I spoke to an archaeologist who went through the rubbish uh, when that was all bulldozed and he thinks that he's found some cold cream pieces and things like that. So it's known there was a red light district there. Or The other thing is that in the Second World War, the American soldiers in Townsville were warned to stay away from the Causeway Hotel because it was very bad for STDs. Mm. So that's also kind of historically um, recorded. So very infamous, although I don't think that they did because there's this great photo of American soldiers in the Second World War with a picture of a naked woman in a cape and she's called Causeway Kate. (laughs) (laughs) And that was painted on the side of... Like it was a tank, so that they were driving around town. Oh my god, <laughs> uh, yeah! So, I you know, that I presumed that the newspaper articles never called her a sex worker or a prostitute, but because of her association with that, and then yeah. the known, so I did uh, assume that in the novel. And as you say, I think the research that I did, particularly, there's a really interesting history of prostitution by Raylene Francis called Selling Sex, A Hidden History of Prostitution in Australia. And she talks exactly, as you say, about how much more women could make as a sex worker, And I think the other interesting thing that was happening in the 20s was the rise of the figure of the flapper. Yes, I was just thinking Mm. about that, yeah. And so you also have this kind of era in the 20s of sexual liberation to some extent, more availability of things like the motor car so that in the past where courting would have to happen, you know, under the watchful supervision of parents, in fact now um, young people had more kind of capacity to get in a car and, mm. and go out have petting parties. Yeah. And <laughs> so there's this kind of, for me, I was also interested in in the way that there was this, I think, double standard going on where it's, and Ramon Francis talks about this as well, that in Australia prostitution had always sort of been seen as this necessary evil for a colony that was mostly men in its early, you know, development, but that was sort of hidden. And then in the 20s there was a kind of emergence of a much more visible and more sexualized female imaginary, mm. I, if that makes sense. And so I think Lizzie is also this figure that's caught at the intersection of this kind of new emerging sexuality. And I think that's also what I wanted to explore in the book.
0: Yeah. Um. I also wonder, like in terms of, so this is sort of the interwar period leading into the Second World War, the period of history that we're looking at and we're talking about, prostitution in Australia was changing, wasn't it? I mean, was it illegal to be a prostitute at this stage or were these houses sort of regulated in certain ways? I mean, there were certain things that prostitutes had to do to sort of report on weekly basis mm-hmm. uh, on all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, prostitution was yeah. kind of a regulated thing at the time, wasn't it? Yes,
2: yes, that's right. And Queensland was a little bit more backwards, I think, than other states. So the Queensland had, I think, the 1911 Health Act that regulated prostitution. And that was, so there were kind of registered licensed venues and the women had to be Checked mm. by a doctor every fortnight
0: mm. oh. it
2: was the kind of uh, arrangement that they had. It, yeah, so in some senses it was regulated, but it also was illegal to visibly be in the street, right? You know, soliciting. Uh, and they call it using indecent language. Oh. Uh, in many newspaper articles, was like it was swearing, but it was also kind of trying to solicit on the street There's so yeah. much
1: code isn't there so much mm. like conservative code language to talk about these things in this period i find that fascinating yes
2: and i think that's what i mean like i think there you have the an example of the double standard where mm. it's an industry that's kind of being regulated but it's also you know not wanting to be visible yeah. and hidden yeah. in some way. Yeah. but it all become it comes back on the women i think because yeah. You then have the the very sensationalised newspaper articles where Lizzie is, for example, treated almost like this well-known celebrity in some way, you know, sort of deviant, I guess. Mm. (laughs) And at the same time that her behaviour is absolutely not condoned and she often suffers at the, I guess, legislation, for example, where she could be locked up in a Mm. lock hospital If she's arrested and they and police suspect she has a venereal disease, they will put her in the in the lock hospital. Yeah,
0: it's that kind of thing. Of as you say, it was seen as that necessary evil, but it's sort of (laughs) like the punishment is on the supply. Nobody punishes Mm. the demand. Yes, the prostitutes that end up actually having to take on all of the blame for what their clients are demanding of them. So it's, it's an incredibly, uh, I don't think this has changed. I, don't, I was going to say, um. I don't think
1: this is a new problem. <laughs> no. Or a problem that's necessarily any different it's been. No, than this I think it's this is just the way it's always been. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, I think particularly for brothel madams to have some degree of power in their role as, uh, you know, managing the brothels, Mm. And there's a famous Melbourne brothel that was near Parliament House. And there's this conspiracy that the parliamentary mace was stolen. And they think that it's in this brothel because all the politicians would visit the brothel no. and hold oh. parliaments there with this mace. And, and it was sort of over in <laughs> by this madam. So there's also, I think, in sex work, a kind of, particularly for lower class women who um, might see how much money is to be made here, that sex work could be potentially a powerful move. But at the same time that it really is this product of a patriarchal, Mm. very unfair kind of class system as well and that the women operating within these systems are still, I think, subject to these controls.
1: Yeah. So in your depiction of Lizzie's experiences within this world, she's working, I guess it's the Causeway is run by a madam in this, well, it's it's set in the Causeway, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and she does yeah so there's the madam and Lizzie is working there as a sex worker and for her your, your depiction is in many ways not all the time but in many ways quite a sex positive experience that she has she does find this work empowering sometimes and I was wondering how again that difference between sex work that occurs in a brothel versus that which is kind of solicited on the street and also this changing period that you're talking about like you said the 1920s we've got the rise of the flapper new kind of ways of talking and thinking about sexuality but still really coded and invisible and all that stuff, is it possible to find evidence of sex work becoming something empowering or is this maybe a 21st century kind of lens that we put on this in order to kind of make it a little bit more palatable? palatable? yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean I think for me it's definitely in that depiction of Lizzie kind of. Exploring her sexuality Mm. and finding sex work a opportunity to do that outside the confines of marriage is me definitely imposing a 21st century worldview. And it was one that was really shaped by the reading that I was doing of sex workers Contemporary sex work is.
1: Because that's certainly an issue at the moment, isn't it? Is this argument, you know, a lot of sex positive feminism about the fact that sex work can be quite an empowering and pleasurable experience for women. It's not necessarily, you know, all these assumptions that we have about it being degrading and all of that stuff. Yes.
2: And it was interesting. So I think it was definitely important for me to not present Lizzie as a victim, Mm. I think it was really important that I showed that she was subject to these patriarchal and and class-based power systems but that she was able to navigate them in some way. And that's not to say that the sex, I don't think the sex is ever comfortable or really lovely (laughs) or anything. It's quite often quite uncomfortable. But I wanted Lizzie not to be a victim and I spoke at, a, at an event about women's writing last year and a woman who was a sex worker and doing a PhD on sex work came up to me afterwards and expressed her concern about the depiction of sex workers, some of whom were her friends, who were depicted as victims mm, mm-hmm. and sort of their stories she felt were being utilised to justify a very hardline stance on sex work. A specific agenda about it. Mm. Yeah, she expressed distress at that. Yeah. And what I was reading of accounts from contemporary sex workers, particularly in the book Cause and Other Feminists, was one that was very important for me when I was thinking about how to represent Lizzie's sexuality. There was a very varied response to the sex industry and i think the different conditions for women so um as you say in a regulated brothel it's a very different condition to a woman who's on the street mm. or perhaps her husband maybe or someone may be pimping her and she may feel less in control yeah and, and then certainly for example indigenous women on stations there was almost sexual slavery. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Because, of course, that's something as well about the novel is that you also touch on, I mean, even though Lizzie's experience is a very sort of specific experience of prostitution, you also touch on the way that it's different racially socially I mean it is a class and a race issue as well and because in the novel Thelma her friend Thelma Grant who has her money stolen she is an Indigenous Australian and so of course it's a very different world for her as well so mm. in your research about how this actually affected people in different sorts of ways depending on race and class was Thelma actually an Indigenous
2: woman I oh, no I don't know Mm. What and I felt like uh, I get you know it's that's it's such a complicated question when you are a white writer of you know do you include indigenous people in your work or you know allow those voices to speak for mm. themselves. Mm. Yeah. But I, I also felt, that, so the research that I was doing, particularly in selling sex, in the history of prostitution, was that that Indigenous women were very present in the industry but had very different experiences to white women. And I felt that I needed to shun on that. Yeah. And also I think race became something that I, I needed to deal with and I needed to confront because Lizzie O'Day's husband, Joseph O'Day, actually committed a very racist crime yeah. mm-hmm. in Townsville where he he murdered a Chinese store owner. And in the novel, I felt that racism and the kind of white racism that would, I guess, facilitate this kind of crime needed to be addressed yeah. yeah, and to show the kind of complexity of race relations in the 20s in Australia. And so it wasn't an easy choice and I'm – I'm not sure if I've got it right, you know, and I think that this is a continued discussion that needs to keep happening. Yeah,
1: Yeah. it's tricky. I think it's a very difficult thing because, like you said, you don't want to take a voice. You want to allow those voices, Mm. you know, marginalized voices to have their own voice and and speak for themselves. Mm. But at the same time, these women were present and Mm. we don't want to contribute to the silencing of those voices by not representing them at all. Mm. Or not acknowledging yes. that or they even a- existed yeah. in this yeah. world. Yeah. And the other difficulty yeah. as well is because you're you're writing from Lizzie's point of view like Mm. you said she's not a victim of this story i don't think she's also she's not a villain but she's certainly a flawed human being and she's also a product of her own time Mm. and so getting Mm. into her mindset as much as you know we have a lot of really great empowering elements of her character particularly in terms of her coming into her sexuality that are really Mm. enjoyable to read there are especially as 21st century readers some difficulties in the way that she does deal with these kinds of racial tensions that exist around her and there's actually one section i'd like to read and then i'll ask you about it afterwards but this is just not very long after lizzie has begun working at the causeway and she's i think she's just been with her first man oh the third man sorry it's her first night it begins lizzie finds she's alone her body has a heaviness to it she'd like to sleep Thelma comes in from the other room. Lizzie recognises her as the woman from The Drunken Night with McWilliams and the bike and from when she fetched Joe a doctor. But now Lizzie's startled by the darkness of her skin in the gaslight. Close up, she has the strangest pale eyes. Her hair rolls from her face in waves. Lizzie can't get the thought out of her mind. She's black. She's black. Unable to make sense of the voice that talked to her between the men and the flat-nosed woman in front of her, she cries again. Thelma puts her hand on Lizzie's shoulder. What's wrong? Still hurting? Lizzie can't tell her it's because she's black. She's so disappointed they can never be proper friends. She wants to have a new friend. Someone like Grace. So that to me really i think captures that mindset that possibly seems foreign to us now possibly not <laughs> you know it's a really difficult thing and i think that's something that you well i i really enjoyed about this book is the fact that lizzie has these tensions yeah but it's also very clear that these kinds of ideas are in her voice yeah i don't think that they're being presented as actual you know kinds of racist <laughs> thought it's more like this is how somebody of the time may have reacted in this situation and it belongs entirely to Lizzie And it's, and
0: it's also present in her so it's there in that sense that she wants to be friends with Thelma but she can't because you know She's indigenous, so they can't be friends. Yeah, But she also has this same tension with her attraction to the Chinese man as well. She has that very same sort of racial mindset of the time. She doesn't understand why she has that attraction and she certainly can't act on that attraction Mm. and she sort of has to keep it as as a dark secret because it's very tense with a lot of this sort of racial hatred that's especially in Joe as well that she could never admit to, to herself as much as to anyone else. Yeah,
2: Yeah. that was such a complex aspect to present and I talked a lot to my editor about this as we were putting it together and how we, you know, do we include racial slurs Mm. that were, you know, recorded and non-racial slurs and how do we navigate that? And I think you're exactly right to sort of point to the way that fictional language can have that irony where we see that this is a character thinking certain things and it's ugly, you know, racism is incredibly ugly and limiting and it limits Lizzie and later on she, in fact, does become friends with Thelma and Thelma plays quite a crucial role in allowing Lizzie to see how she might survive sex work. Yeah. And I think that Liz, while Liz is able to kind of break down some of that racism, Joe can't. Yeah. And I think that it really is the source of the violent crimes that he commits. And I, I felt as much as this is a complex and it's ugly and difficult to write about, in fact, this whole book was really hard to write, it doesn't make it easy to read either I think in a lot of ways it's quite an uncomfortable book and I'm next time I'm I'm gonna do something much nicer (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is I mean at the
1: end like you said when we first started at the end it is Lizzie who who shoots this woman's thumb because it's Thelma's things that are stolen so I think that you know Mm. we do see her like move through this and react to it and deal with it and it's To me, I still read them as friends. I still read that these two women became friends Mm -hmm. and were able to overcome that racial kind of distancing that is, again, not inherent in how they think about each other, but is as much of a product of society as, you know, the stigmas about the, Mm. like, sex work that they're engaged in or, you know.
2: Yeah, and I really, I wanted Lizzie to kind of be at this intersection of all kinds of power structures that, were limiting her that in fact were causing her to do these things that it's so difficult to understand Mm. you know she's such a confused woman because she's at once trying to be liberated but comes up against again and again these power structures these cultural ideas that are incredibly hurtful and limiting and she can't quite unravel all of that Mm. to fully be able to escape those cycles that she's caught up in
0: and one of those power structures as well that we've sort of touched on and that we're talking about but one of those other power structures is of course her marriage to joe as well joe is another Mm. figure and you know we've talked about joe's motivations for the crimes he commits as sort of racially driven but joe becomes in a way lizzie becomes the breadwinner for their relationship. Mm. So, you know, Joe kind of ends up in a way sort of emasculated. Yeah, and he
1: really feels
0: that. And he really, really (laughs) feels that. And so Lizzie actually kind of ends up with the financial upper hand in this relationship. So that's another power structure. And I wonder in your research about Joe, What sort of things that you you actually might have found out about how do these relationships work? How did these relationships kind of function in this society and this time and place?
2: Mm. I mean, it's really interesting because it seems like from the newspaper archives that Lizzie, I mean, she was married to Joe, certainly, but she also seems to have, when he was sentenced to 20 years in jail in Townsville for the murder, he was sent down to Brisbane to Bogo Road. And so Lizzie then starts, the newspaper archives record her committing crimes in Brisbane. Mm. So it seems that she followed him. Yeah. And there's a really interesting example where a magistrate lets Lizzie off because Joe is due to, for his parole hearing, due to potentially get out. And the magistrate says, you know, Actually, we might try this as a social experiment. Which <laughs> I'm going to let and see if she can be reunited with her husband and maybe they can make a better life together. <laughs> and, in fact, Joe wasn't let out for some time until later and he was only out for two weeks before he glassed somebody in a bar fight and then was sent straight back oh to jail. So there does seem to be some pull that Joe has with Lizzie that she seems to have followed him, to have waited for him for, you know, almost 20 years and I don't know if she actually met him in the prison, at the prison gate. That was something that I sort of imagined. And I think that demonstrates the power dynamic in these relationships and certainly what happens for Lizzie is that she is so caught up in the idea of being with him and wanting to, to be with him and having, aspiring, I think, to this ideal life of a husband and, and a house. She's Domestic quite Domestic bliss. Mm. Yes, mm. which is in some ways this sort of strange attempt for her to escape the criminal life that her father has, you know, is the only thing he sort of offered her. Uh, and I think that that is what happens in this kind of patriarchal society that you know valorizes the domestic relationship and that marriage as and I think this is probably me imposing a 20th century mm. 21st century view on this again but that's kind of you know marriage and house as pinnacle of success yeah and, and you know and Lizzie is quite obsessed with success and doing well and you know grasping for power but it, that how damaging that idea can be particularly for women yeah how you know getting caught up in that you know desire for this and caught up in a relationship with a man who is hugely violent and and I had no I have no evidence that he was violent towards her but you know that's you can't really tell in, yeah. in that situation as well Yeah, I think it's interesting, without giving away the ending, some readers have commented to me that they would like a happier ending. (laughs) I think that that's actually this really interesting example of of how powerful the romance narrative is. Yeah. Yeah. How possibly we want to stay with people even, well, some people you know like how but that's such a powerful pull I think in many cases that desire to be with and and the kind of sense of resolution in narratives that comes when people stay together Mm. yeah but when you put it in this scenario that it actually how damaging that narrative can yep. be. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because I was really, I mean, again, without giving too much away, I was rooting for something else to happen. <laughs> I was rooting for a, a different person. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I have without to say. giving too much yeah. away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which breaks that domestic narrative and it breaks that romance ending. Well, you know, in a way it subverts the romance ending, I suppose. But again, that's another difficulty. But I don't, uh, yeah, maybe we won't go too much into it, that because I don't want to spoil I things. won't unpack that too much. Yeah,
2: yeah. Maybe people can read it and sort of just add (laughs) to what Yeah, but, I mean, I think that – and that was something I worked a lot with my editor, Kate, a lot as well is on the ending. And I think that endings in fiction can often reveal so much to us about our expectations, about how stories should go and uh, how our own life stories should go as well, you know, and this is – I think when you when you have the kind of, you know, the bio fiction where there's that element of you know that this is a real person so you can see a life there that it can reveal potentially a lot to us about the sort of stories that we tell ourselves about our lives and, and stories we'd like our lives to have.
1: Yeah, and that actually brings me to the point about historical fiction because it's so yes there's we're kind of caught up in these ideas about what narratives are and what we expect from our narratives but historical fiction is also really interesting because it's sort of duly concerned with both the past and the present I think that historical fiction is a really important or potentially really important way to bring up a lot of concerns of the present by revealing Issues of the past. We've said that you kind of had a little bit of this 21st century lens in thinking about some of the mindsets of the characters. But how important do you think this kind of historical fiction is, particularly, and this is because this is what I'm really passionate about revisionist, feminist historical fiction? in kind of unpacking, not just rediscovering historical women's voices, but also thinking about what those mean for us now when we're reading them?
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you've summarised it beautifully there, the (laughs) way that historical fiction, in, I think, drawing attention to the stories of women that are, are not very well known. So Lizzie's story is in... Available publicly in the archives, but you sort of have to know where to look. Mm. There's a little bit. There's a very brief mention of her in a book called Gangland Queensland, and apart from that, she's kind of really little known in sort of not in the towns or histories. You know, not in Queensland histories. Just not really known. And I think that historical fiction. There's a long history of historical fiction taking. You know, telling the stories of women, and in doing so, intersecting with a very different kind of historical narrative that we as a society tell ourselves. Mm. and Australia, for some reason, seems so obsessed with male criminals and bushrangers and definitely <laughs> I've just moved to Urella, and there's a Captain Thunderbolt, a famous bushranger, has a his grave oh. is at the end of <laughs> my street. Oh my God. <laughs>
1: Captain, Captain Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt. That's yes. great.
2: That's so good. His grave is kind of sweetly pebbled with white stones, with little plastic flowers, with oh a white God. picket fence around it, which is quite unexpected. I think he was a bush ranger. was a highwayman who held up coaches <gasps> along the New England highway. But It's really there you bizarre, go, isn't it, how That's, we yeah celebrate these criminals in Australia. Yeah, he and he has a statue in the in the main street of town and you can visit the cave and where wow. he his hideout and you know there's this kind of whole national narrative around male criminals yeah. and male strangers and very little about the female criminal and as you mentioned earlier what is there is very differently treated in the archives. Mm. But I think also in the way that we think about women criminals, not that sex work is necessarily a crime, I don't want to imply that, but about the way that we, I guess, think about women who are not doing what's expected of them. Yeah, absolutely. Not behaving within the uh, accepted boundaries. Yep.
1: And she was a criminal. She did shoot. Yeah, she did
2: shoot someone in the (laughs) thumb. She did. She stole, I mean, she was, she was quite aggressive as well. She threw a book at a judge once and <laughs> wore a constable's coat twice, I think, actually. <laughs> yeah, so she was, a, I guess, a, also a petty criminal and thief. Yeah, mm. stole some blankets. I think I mentioned that. Yes, and then in real life, not in the novel, she was also involved in Sydney in the, in the kind of underworld, underbelly kind of aspect there. But I didn't go in there um, there in the novel. But I guess what I'm trying to say is there's this national narrative around, uh, you know, the male criminal who's often glamorised and valorized, and sort of it becomes a tourist attraction in some ways compared to the female criminal who is in that national narrative actually quite hidden. Yeah, definitely. And I think what fiction can do, one thing is to really imagine bodily emotional experiences and really get into the bodies and minds and subjectivities of characters. Yeah in perhaps a way that's not available to a solely, uh, you know, a writer of of history. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing as well is that in that imaginative act, you are also imposing a contemporary imagination. But I think that's actually part of what it can do in telling stories of little known women and in imagining their experiences. I think it can draw attention to exactly these kinds of discourses that we've been talking about, and also suggest ways that women might navigate these power structures, mm. might avoid potentially these very powerful labels of victim or yeah. you know, or even deviant. Yeah. To yeah. speak to your podcast title yeah. <laughs> and present that level of complexity, I think exactly, but. Yep. Kind of From a very subjective, personal, and I I would say as a writer of historical fiction that when I enter the past and I enter the archives, I change and I guess writing about Lizzie has changed me Mm. substantially in the ways that I think about, well, the stories that I tell myself, the kind of um, attitudes that I have to relationships and to sexuality and how these labels have actually been imposed on me they're not something that's coming you know spontaneously from an internal place yeah I I
1: think that's the thing that I really love about this kind of historical fiction is that it it reveals to us where we've come from the issues that have grounded where we are now Mm. because you know time is linear and we we move forward from these points and it doesn't mean that they don't exist anymore these are the things that are at the background of all of the ways that we think and function in the world and all of the assumptions that kind of underlie the society that we live and exist in now. And so reading historical fiction can give you that sense of, well, this is where these attitudes kind of arise from. This is the stuff that is in the background of all of the assumptions that all of us carry with us all the time. And that is why this is relevant to me now, because it helps you to understand yourself in the present as much as it does other people in the past i think mm.
2: Mm. yeah i think it you know there's a complex little experiment going on when you engage in historical fiction and it's a little bit of a, a fantastical journey really because you're imagining that you can travel in in a past that is actually really no longer accessible to us except through these often quite flawed archival traces mm. and yet you're being invited to imagine a past and that imaginative act can has the capacity to do so many you know to be thoughtful and thought-provoking and relevant to how we're thinking now and how we are now
0: yeah absolutely well i think we've had an excellent discussion today i think we've covered a lot of Absolutely fascinating material. So thank you so much for joining us,
2: Aurelia. Oh, thank you. That was a wonderful discussion. <laughs> you
1: yeah, <laughs> asked all the big questions. <laughs> Is there any um, final points you want to uh, leave us with? Do you want to let us know where we can pick up the book or anything Yeah, like that? give
2: us a plug. Yeah, so you can buy Treading Air in all good bookstores. <laughs> yep it's also available online and as an ebook. yeah because we do well. have
1: a lot of international listeners as well so they may yeah. be able to access it online if they can't find it in their local bookstore
2: yes absolutely it's available on amazon and my website is com. so if you want to <laughs> check that out as well Excellent. Excellent,
0: definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And um, perhaps you might be able to find out something about Captain Thunderbolt's <laughs> daughter or love interest or someone.
2: Well, I believe someone's already done that.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh wow.
2: Uh, yes. Oh, well, you might
0: just have to write about Captain Thunderbolt himself then.
2: Mm. Uh, I think he's had enough written about him. Okay, yeah. All right, forget
0: him. Forget Captain Thunderbolt. Yes, yeah, done. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Okay. So a very fascinating journey into another part of Australian history. Yeah. Uncovering another little-known
1: woman or a, a forgotten woman. Yeah, bringing her story back to light in the tropical north in the tropical which north which is very different from the, in the wet drizzly in cold south where we are deep north the deep deep north <laughs> we like to call it the deep north but if you like the podcast there are a bunch of ways you can support us you can follow us on twitter we are at Deviant Women. Or you can like us on Facebook. You can do other things on the Facebooks as well. You don't just have to like us. Well, you could yeah. interact with us either. You can interact you with us. You can send us a message. You could talk to us. You could even
0: send us an email.
1: Yes. If we you are want to do that. We are uh,
0: We're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, all those sorts of things. Please subscribe
1: and please leave us reviews. We love reviews. Reviews. <laughs> more reviews. And of course, if you want to really, really show your love for us, this is the part that feels really awkward and icky, but uh, we are on Patreon and we will gratefully accept your patronage if you really love the show. We won't reject it. We won't be like, nah, (laughs) go away. We do have some pretty cool rewards for everyone who does join us. And like we said at the very beginning of the podcast, um, we are working on some exclusive online only content that should be coming at you Hopefully, very soon. Yeah, because you want more of us, obviously. Yeah, I mean, so much more of us.
0: <laughs> yeah. And of course, the merch shop as well on Etsy. So that's where
1: you can get your hands on and our can... t shirts and enamel pins. And you can find links for those at devianwomenpodcast.com So I think that brings us to the end of it this does. particular episode. And once again, big thank you to Brendan for the sound and India for the music. And thank you everyone out there for joining us we'll see you next time (laughs) bye